One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases. And it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. Hey there, guys. Welcome back to the podcast. This is actually part nine of our uh, functional hierarchy of health. We're still talking about cortisol. This will be the last episode where we talk about the adrenal system. And today we're going to focus on the cortisol awakening response. And we'll talk about the other hormone made by the adrenals, which is called DHEA. Um, so th this is really about other aspects of the adrenal system that typically don't get a lot of focus and attention, uh, but nevertheless are critical to your well-being. And, and again, that's the cortisol awakening response and, and DHEA. And I went through this in some detail in prior episodes. Um, so I'll touch on the highlights and the core concepts today. And then I'll refer you back to the list of episodes where you can just simply search for the word adrenals. You'll find several episodes where I go over a bunch of key information that's going to give you some deeper insights. So let's talk about this thing called the cortisol awakening response. First of all, um, I want you to understand that one of the primary jobs of your adrenals or the primary job, one of the primary jobs that it plays is to wake you up and prepare you for your day, right? And that means basically two main things. That means clarity of mind and energy. And I've said this before that it's normal and expected to wake up in the morning just a little bit hungry, but more importantly, <laughs> energetic and mentally clear and focused because after all, you have a day to tackle, right? You have known and unknown challenges to overcome. And you can't do that if your first reaction to waking up is either hit the snooze button or just simply drag yourself to the coffee pot, growling and snapping at anyone who dares to get in your way. So here's how this works. There's a part of your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. You don't remember, need to remember that name. Just know that there's a part deep in your primal brain that actually controls your response to light, particularly the frequencies of waking light or first morning light or sunrise light. So when you wake up and light hits your eyes, the retina in the back of your eyeballs sends a neurological signal back to this suprachiasmatic nucleus, which then relays an electrochemical signal to the waking centers of your brain. The fancy term would be your reticular activating system. So this part of your brain then relays another signal down to your adrenal glands, basically saying rise and shine, which is a signal for the adrenals to dramatically increase the production of cortisol for the next 30 minutes, which then serves to energize or mobilize your energy stores, increasing blood sugar for fuel to activate your frontal lobe, which is predominantly what gives you uh, your focus and your attention. And what the research tells us is that this initial zap of cortisol first thing in the morning is essentially like a spark that ignites your energy and your focus for the rest of your day. If you have a good cortisol awakening response, it sets you up for a successful day and you have a better chance of enjoying good energy and mental clarity. 
However, if your cortisol awakening response is deficient, then right out of the gate, you're behind the eight ball, so to speak, right? You're trying to play catch up. And for the rest of the day, it usually means either constant or periodic lulls in energy and in brain power. In terms of quantity, if we could measure your cortisol as soon as you wake up and then again 30 minutes later, you should see about a 50% increase over your baseline morning cortisol in that first 30-minute window. So just to make up numbers to illustrate, if your baseline cortisol is 10 when you first wake up, then half an hour later it should be 15, right? Just to keep the math quite simple. If it's less than that, then your cortisol awakening response is deficient and you lack that morning spark that gets you ready to go for the rest of the day. It's just simply too weak. Now, how do you know or begin to suspect that your cortisol awakening response is deficient? Well, you can ask yourself a series of very simple questions. Number one is, do you wake up ready to go or do you wake up feeling groggy and foggy? Do you use the snooze button on your alarm clock? Personally, I don't think I've used the snooze button more than maybe once or twice in my entire life. That might not be you. If the first thing you see in the morning or if the first person you see in the morning turns and runs the other way rather than incur your morning wrath, then you might have a problem, right? And you can also ask yourself, like, do you rely on coffee or exercise or some other form of stimulant in the morning to be able to function? Right. And this is a spectrum, just like so many other things as it relates to biological systems. When when your cortisol awakening response is really deficient, then you might chronically oversleep and just barely drag yourself out of bed to get to work or to do whatever it is you're supposed to do in the morning. If it's really bad, but not quite as bad as what I just described, then maybe you're able to get up. You don't feel that great, but you need, and I emphasize need, a stimulant to get your motor going. Coffee, exercise are common tools. Smokers, of course, use nicotine, which they don't. Nobody should should be smoking. <clears throat> now, you can imagine that some people who need coffee in the morning couldn't even think of like working out first thing in the morning, whereas others, exercise is the only thing that keeps them functional. So they they there are some people who wouldn't dare miss their morning workout, whether that's a spin class or CrossFit or whatever, but nevertheless, the morning exercise regimen has to be something that's energetic and zippy, something that's really going to get their brain woken up and their blood flowing. Now, on the flip side, if you wake up and you're raring to go and you don't need those stimulants to function, then you can probably safely assume that at least your cortisol awakening response is doing fine. Now, that doesn't mean that your circadian rhythm is fine for the rest of the day. It means that the morning aspect of this is working. But you may, be, you may do great first thing in the morning, but you might hit a lull after lunch or sometime in the mid-afternoon. Or you might work okay all day, but 8 o'clock comes and you're done and you just simply crash. Everybody's just a little bit different. But here's the confusing part. Let's say that your cortisol awakening response is working and you are getting that 50% increase, that spark in the first 30 minutes of waking up. But let's add that your morning cortisol is actually higher than it should be rather than lower. What does that look like? And, and so let me repeat this just so that I'm clear. Some people have a normal cortisol awakening response, but they're starting out with elevated cortisol, not low cortisol. And this looks exactly the same as someone who has a faulty 
cortisol awakening response leading to low morning cortisol. The symptoms and the dysfunction are the same. They're groggy and foggy. They hate mornings. They need stimulants or some other morning support strategy to function. The difference is not in the symptoms and how it affects your quality of life. The difference is in actually what your labs look like in the objective testing. And that brings me back to the value of testing and knowing, right? Just because you might be tired in the morning does not guarantee that your cortisol awakening response is faulty or that your morning cortisol levels are too low. Same symptoms, different labs, and therefore different treatment strategies. Now, you might remember last episode, I talked about my brand new lab shop where you can order the same test that I use for my personal coaching clients. And I do this through my relationship with Rupa Health. And just before I started recording today, I added a saliva test from ZRT Labs that measures your cortisol awakening response and measures your cortisol and DHEA throughout the rest of the day. Essentially, this is a classic salivary adrenal test with the addition of the cortisol awakening response. You can do either one. But if you have trouble in the morning, either because of low or high cortisol or the def defective cortisol awakening response, you definitely want to do the test that has the cortisol awakening response as part of it. If your morning is fine, but your energy and brain are trash throughout the rest of the day, you can assume that your cortisol awakening response is probably okay. You don't necessarily need that particular version of the test. So just like last time, you can use the link in the episode description to go to my lab shop. Look at the tier one testing section, which is the very first one that you should see, and look for a test by ZRT, and it's called the Cortisol Awakening Response Profile. Very simple. So it's the Cortisol Awakening Response Profile from by ZRT in the tier one testing section of the lab shop. And again, you can order this yourself without having to talk to me or any other doctor. All right. So that's the cortisol awakening response. That's how you know if you have it or suspect and how you can define that through objective lab testing. Let's move on to the final aspect of adrenal testing and let's talk about DHEA, right? This is the other hormone, the other adrenal hormone that quite often gets overlooked. Um, it's almost made exclusively in the adrenal gland. Only about 10% of your circulating DHEA levels are made by other tissues, predominantly your gonads, that would be ovaries for women and testes for men. DHEA can cross the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain, but you need to know that your brain can make DHEA too. But there's no, measure, no, there's no way to measure DHEA that originates in the brain. We just you know, do a blood sample, do a saliva sample, we see the DHEA, but we can't differentiate how much of this is coming from the brain or actually getting into the brain because, again, the brain makes its own stuff. The best that we can do, again, is either measure DHEA in blood or saliva, both are accurate, and that tells us what's available throughout the entire body, right? Not, not specific to or, or focused specifically on the brain environment. Now, in terms of action, we can divide DHEA functionality into two main categories. We can actually do more than that, but two main categories, let's call them direct and indirect. And I think what is most known about DHEA is that it serves as a precursor to both testosterone and estrogen, particularly the most potent estrogen called estradiol. So basically, your adrenal glands make this hormone DHEA, 
which then gets enzymatically converted into either male type or female type hormones. And this is an indirect function because it's got to go through one step before it gets there. And it tells us that one main function of DHEA is to act as source material or as a pool of precursor material to make other things, mainly testosterone and estrogen. But DHEA also has direct effects, meaning it's, it's a shorter step. DHEA can actually do things on its own rather than having, be, having to be converted into something that then does the work. So most of the direct, of, direct effects of DHEA occurs by DHEA hormone itself binding to different types of hormone and neurotransmitter receptors. And this part might surprise you. Research in the last 10 years or so tells us that DHA can not just convert into testosterone, but can bind to androgen or male type hormone receptors by itself, exerting an androgen effect just like testosterone does. In fact, this effect is strong enough that some papers call DHEA an androgen. It classifies that hormone in the same category as testosterone or androstenedione or dihydrotestosterone. All of these are male-type hormones. They call them androgens. Again, just like testosterone, the kind of the keystone one. But hold on a second. We know that DHEA can also bind to estrogen receptors, which means that DHEA not only converts into testosterone, DHEA not only converts into estrogen, it can act directly on not just testosterone receptors, but estrogen receptors as well, acting just like the hormones that it converts into. And the, the literature tells us that the effect of DHEA on estrogen receptors is almost as potent as estrogen binding to estrogen receptors on its own. So in fact, if we consider that DHEA is the most abundant steroid hormone that's circulating in your body, it's present in higher concentrations than any other male or female type hormones, more than even cortisol. And if we consider that not only is it a precursor to testosterone and estrogen, but that it acts just like testosterone and estradiol on its own, you start to understand how important it is to have normal DHEA levels. Let me add one more thing to this list. DHEA steadily declines as we age, such that by the time we're in our, say, 80s, we have only a fraction of the DHEA we had compared to our youth. And again, as such, there's been a lot of research done looking at DHEA levels and the correlation it has to longevity and the diseases of aging like cardiovascular disease as well as neurodegenerative states. And on that last point, some papers call DHEA a neurosteroid, meaning that it works on the brain and can act like a neuroinflammatory agent for your brain. It works in conjunction with certain neurotransmitters, both excitatory and inhibitory ones like GABA. And it's been studied for its neuroprotective effects in head injury as well as cognitive decline. Now, if that wasn't enough to convince you how important DHEA is to your health and your wellness, DHEA is known to counteract the potential downside of chronically high cortisol and stress. Not only does it downregulate the impact of, of cortisol and tissue, it's been shown in some studies to directly inhibit cortisol levels, not just the action of cortisol on the tissues, like your brain. 
but cortisol levels themselves, the actual levels. And finally, we have some evidence that when the DHEA to cortisol ratio is too low, and all the labs that do these salivary adrenal tests that I'm recommending calculate this DHEA to cortisol ratio, but when this ratio is too low, meaning we have too little DHEA compared to the cortisol that we have, this can imply that someone is in a catabolic state. And if you're not familiar with that word, catabolic means breaking down as opposed to anabolic, which means building up. And this is critical since if we have someone do one of these saliva tests that I've been talking about, and we see a low DHEA and especially a low ratio between DHEA and cortisol, then we know that someone is not repairing their body during sleep. And instead of building up and repairing their tissues, they're breaking them down. They're not recuperating. They're not regenerating, which is part of what sleep is for. And the long-term cost of that is something that nobody wants to pay. All right, I'm going to leave that here for now. We're going to call the section on adrenals closed. Let me remind you again of the lab shop where you can get the same test that I use in my one-on-one -on -one practice without having to see a doctor. That way you can check out, check out your own adrenal status, check out not just your cortisol, your circadian rhythm, but your DHEA, your cortisol awakening response, as well as your DHEA cortisol ratio, all from the comfort of your home. Now, next time we're gonna move on to the next priority in our functional hierarchy of health, and that's the lipid balance. So we're talking cholesterol and cardiovascular disease and coronary artery disease risk. We're going to talk about cortisol, if you should really care if it's too high. We'll look at key cardiovascular risk ratios and what numbers you really need to be paying attention to in your labs. There's a lot of myths and misconceptions in this area. Until next time, do me a favor, subscribe, leave a comment so we can reach more people right here at the Inflammation Nation. Thanks for being part of the group.